0: Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. At least I hope it's a happy Monday or a happy day wherever you are and whenever you're tuning in. Uh, Currently, most of North America is in a deep freeze, so it might be hard to find the happy. But hey, maybe today's podcast can bring a little of that to you. Uh, Thanks for listening in again this week. And as always, a big thank you and welcome to any new listeners who are joining in for the first time. Uh, All of your listening and subscribing to the podcast means a ton, and I really do appreciate it. And if you feel up to it, if you like what you hear, uh, and you feel up to spreading the word to your colleagues or on social media, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever, I would also appreciate that too. Uh, Today, I'm excited to have Star Saxton joining me for the interview. We delve into all of Star's assessment work and her growth as a professional, as well as specifically what prompted her to go gradeless. And in Assessment Corner... I've had a couple of questions this week about, uh, they were in some online trainings about multiple choice. So I'm going to explore when multiple choice is an appropriate assessment method and format and how to develop a quality multiple choice item. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. conversation with Star Saxine is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by talking about the allure of labels, and the use of labels to short-circuit any real substantive debate. Now, as I begin, I'm not really sure if this is a comment or simply an observation. I also don't think this is brand new. Now, what is new is the frequency and ferocity with which the labels are used to undercut any real conversation between those who disagree. What I'm observing now, and I think more than ever, is this laser like use of labels to undercut an opposition argument and force your opposition to defend against the charge rather than debate the merits of the idea. And, just let me say, I think this is yet another unfortunate outcome of our 280 character driven soundbite manufacturing social media culture. Now, in some ways, it's kind of a brilliant tactic. If, in a debate, I can label you, if I can take advantage of something and label you a misogynist or a narcissist or a racist, then I force you to defend yourself against the charge and prove that you're not. It's akin to the conspiracy theory research I talked about a few episodes ago, right? The label is hurled upon you, and now you have to spend time proving the negative. You have to prove that you're not a misogynist, you're not a racist, you're not a narcissist. Now when you're doing that, guess what you're not doing? That's right. You're not debating the merits of your side of the argument. So if I can brand you a bigot, a racist, a misogynist, a radical, if I can label you toxic, if I can call you a narcissist, a few things happen. One, I put you on the defensive. Two, you now have to prove me wrong. Three, I can dismiss the entire substance of your claim. Since it's coming from a discredited source, right? Someone with such a flawed character couldn't possibly have a credible idea or should be listened to. And I, hopefully, I suppose this is the tactic, relieve myself from having to defend my side of an issue. Why? Because now you're going to be talking about you. If you don't, then the charge goes unchecked and it hangs out there. If you do, then I've got you distracted. Now, Before I go on, let me just be clear, okay? Bigots are real. Misogynists are real. Radicals are real. There are toxic people in this world. Narcissists are real. Racists are all too real. Okay, I'm not talking about those people. Those labels fit because there is a repeated evidence of behavior. That is who they are. That's their character. The labels fit. They're deserved. And that's indisputable. So like I say, don't at me. What I am talking about are these quick-on-the-trigger labels that take the substance and nuance away from any discussion. Now, labels in and of themselves can be both important and a little bit reductive. We see this in education, right? The labels of being an English language learner or a student receiving special services can be important because they help us access supplemental funding, they direct our attention to the most appropriate interventions, the, the most appropriate supports, and many of the contextual considerations we have to think about. But at their worst, they become the lens through which we see everything about a student. Or, in fact, the student becomes the label itself through the eyes of the teachers, and it clouds everything we think about that student because of that label. Our affinity for labels in general reveals our need to go top shelf with our assertions, right? It might, ironically, reveal either a kind of insecurity or egocentricity in our position. Why insecurity? Well, I don't want to argue the merits of my argument, so I label you so I don't have to, because I don't feel I could stand strong in my position. Why egocentricity? Well, for you to disagree with me, there must be something seriously wrong with you, since it's not possible that I'm wrong. The collective lesson in our current climate as I talked about in episode 15 with the dehumanization of people, is that the fastest way to dehumanize you is to label you with some horrific charge that can disarm you and leave you with limited to no credibility. You see this a lot on TV, especially news programs that entail debate, political debate especially, right? The reason it's so effective is that on television, there are time limits. So if I label you and then you have to defend yourself against that label, I can run out the clock and actually not talk about the ideas we were meant to talk about in the first place. Now, here's the crux of the problem as I see it. If we keep going to the label well too often, and it starts to sort of become our go-to strategy, it starts to become background noise. If that's the default every single time, it's going to have less of an impact. And then, guess what? Those who are actually those things we'll get cover from the masses now i don't really know what the answer is but what i do know is that argument by label is an unhealthy way to debate and not going to do anything but divide us as people now there was a time when the adage you know the first person to make it personal knows they've lost the debate or lost the argument but it seems now everything gets personal so quickly and everyone gets stuck in in politics For most of my life, compromise and bipartisanship was viewed as a sign of strength. Now it seems to be viewed as a sign of weakness. And I do think the social media climate is a huge contributor to the problem. You really can't make a mistake these days without it living in infamy for days and days and days and days. The purity police on Twitter has definitely created an intolerable climate for mistakes. And again, I want to be clear, okay, there are bigots. Bigots are real. They exist. Misogynists are real. Radicals are real. Narcissists are real. Toxic people exist and racists exists, and they need to be called out. You see, I'm even doing it here. I realize that if I don't keep putting in those disclaimers, there'll be a whole lot of adding going on uh, on my Twitter feed or my accounts or my email. But there's a huge difference between someone for whom the label is most applicable and the definition of their character, and their track record shows that, there's a difference between that and just someone who disagrees with you in this moment. There's even a middle group who might make a mistake and acutely act in a way that reflects one of those labels, but that's not the person. Some might say, well, Tom, they've said it, so that, that must be who they are. Well, Perfection and purity is unattainable, right? So if you say enough words, you're going to make a mistake at some point. Now, the frustration of the masses being constantly labeled and put on the defensive provides cover, as I said earlier. It provides cover to those who are truly those things. The collective pushback inadvertently gives bigots, misogynists, radicals, narcissists, and racists, and others a kind of societal shield. Now, we have to mit- resist this most alluring of tactics and get back to disagreeing without being disagreeable or without hurling labels at people. Maybe we have to be mindful of saying things like what you said was or what you did was instead of saying you are. Okay, And that way we avoid sort of the character assassination and and still are able to call out that which the person said as being discriminatory or being misogynist, and that person has a chance to sort of respond to that in that situation. Is that being too nitpicky and maybe a little sensitive or fragile? Maybe, I suppose. But on the other hand, when you don't truly know someone, it seems a little aggressive to label them with such horrific charges because you don't like their particular stance or you, or you disagree with their particular position. And again, I'm not talking about the obvious and egregious kinds of perspectives that we see on the fringes. If used too often, labels are going to lose their impact as those who even deserve the labels will simply be able to join the chorus of pushback and dismiss it as yet again the go-to strategy that becomes so predictable that it actually backfires. They'll be able to say, well, here we go again. Everything is suddenly toxic. Everything is toxic. Everyone's toxic. So let's reserve the labels for when they are truly deserved and get back to being able to disagree with intellectual substance and nuance. Joining me today for the interview is Star Saxton. Star began her teaching career as a high school English teacher and a journalism teacher. She is the author of several books, including Hacking Assessment, 10 Ways to Go Gradeless in a Traditional Grade School. And her latest release is called From Teacher to Leader, Finding Your Way as a First-Time Leader Without Losing Your Mind. I love that. Star blogs at Education Week Teacher. She co-moderates chats on Twitter. Uh, she's made the BAMI award finals for secondary high school uh, as a secondary high school educator in 2014 and for blogging in 2015. She was named one of ASCD's emerging leaders in the class of 2016. You get the point. She's already had a very accomplished career with much, much more to come from Star. So Star, I want to welcome you to the Tom Shimmer podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Tom. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Great. I'm glad to have you here as well. Now, before we dig in, I have to ask, what are the BAMI awards?
1: So I think a bunch of years ago, they had these, like one of the education, um, the BAM network had like, um, it's kind of like the Oscar style awards Ah, um, and other educators were asked to vote who like they wanted to nominate. And then once there was a field of candidates, there was like, you know, just voting. Um, It's like a big deal in the States for a couple of years, and then it just yeah. kind of went under. So,
0: okay. I, kind of I, just lo- I, just <laughs> I just love the name. I just love the name, the BAMI Awards. Uh, that's great. Um, you know, uh, Star, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because you are uh, a strong advocate, vocal, uh, and, and certainly a very influential voice. Uh, in the area of assessment and grading Uh, so we're going to dig into that today and certainly that's a topic that is near and dear to my heart as well so uh, let's begin with the big question and the big question for me uh, around you know assessment and grading is how has your assessment mindset and your grading mindset shifted since you first started teaching like how have you what's what's been the arc of your career just from contrasting the beginning of your career to now
1: So I mean, and and it is just that it's a stark contrast. I would say the first five years of my career were very much the way most people start, um, emulating what I thought education was supposed to be, assessment was supposed to be from my own student experience. And um, rigor to me meant that students weren't passing the assessments that I was creating. Like I made them so hard that Kids couldn't do well on them. It's a little embarrassing now looking back um, on some of the really horrific things I did um, as a very new teacher, Mm -hmm. just, you know, like to the point where, you know, there were a lot of multiple choice tests, essays, there were projects every once in a while, but the projects didn't have very much merit. Um, because they just didn't understand how to design a project or you know that it should be more than just a creation of sorts and not really aligned with standards or anything and then when my son started school um, his elementary school had standards-based grading and I saw how much feedback I got on his report cards about what he knew and could do And, and I think for a while Um, It wasn't sitting right. Like, you know how you start to get that feeling that some of your practices, although easy to do and make your life a little, a little more um, efficient, they just don't feel right after a while. And I started seeking out reading at that point. Um, You know, I I read Ken O'Connor's book and I had read something Mark Barnes wrote. And you know, I think with Ken, it was his the 15 fixes for broken grades. And every time he explained a scenario that wasn't good and why it wasn't good, I'd sort of sit there and shame myself because I identified with almost everything he said that was not so good. And, um, you know, I, I just started to tinker. I think after seeing my son's report card, I had this opportunity to think about, well, if they are able to break down what he knows and can, you know, what he knows and what he can do and not assess the areas that they haven't covered yet. Like, how does that translate into a high school AP class um, where I'm assessing so many standards all the time, we're working on so many skills, so much different content and they get one grade, um, you know, once, once a marking period, a few times a year. And that grade scarcely um, really speaks to the full depth of understanding. And I think once that realization kind of hit me, it's like once once you you are given the site and you know that there's another way to do things, it's really hard to go back to the way that that you did it before, even if the way you did it before was easy. And so then it became my life's work, I guess, to figure out a better way that was gonna work inside of the system I was working in and the students I was working with and how far to the other end of the spectrum could I really go. And it started with, um, you know, just delaying grades as long as possible, especially as a writing teacher, not putting, um, Mm. not putting a grade on people's writing and then stopping grading group work and, you know, bringing reflection into the picture so that I could kind of hear student voice a little bit more and then starting to bring kids into the whole development of the assessment. So, I mean, I went from crazy town in my early career with, you know, I'm in charge. This is what's right points off for everything to moving to, you know, grading as little as possible and really till none at all on the other end Mm -hmm. where we were having assessment conferences based on their portfolios. And we were deciding together what grade was going to go on the report card because I couldn't get away from that being in the New York city public school system. um, I had to put a grade in for report card time, but I didn't have grades all marking period long up till that point. So I would say as far from one end of the spectrum (laughs) to the other, as you can go.
0: So, so many of us who who do this work have the story of those first five or six years. I look back at, at my career and I think about those first five or six years. And it's interesting you referenced your son because it, the same thing happened to me. Uh, my daughter was born in 1997 and it put me in this uncomfortable place where I didn't like what I had been doing. And I immediately started looking at school through the lens of what if that was my daughter, but I didn't know what else to do. So I, I almost describe it as this assessment and grading purgatory where I was uncomfortable with my traditional practices, but I didn't know what to turn to and it sort of left me in this limbo, uh, for that. So, so the contrast is, is obviously polar opposites, but, so you mentioned, uh, your son, you mentioned, uh, Ken O'Connor, uh, and of course I think so many people have been influenced by Ken's book, 15 fixes. Um, are there any other sort of pivotal moments of, as you walk through your career? What What are some of the, in, in maybe a little bit more detail, what are some of those pivotal moments that sort of shaped the way you thought about assessment and grading?
1: So, I mean, I think it was also bringing reflection in and people have spoken about the necessity of teaching metacognition to students, getting them involved in their own thinking and doing and what they and what they were kind of going to. And everything that I had read about reflection up till that point to me felt very limited. So, like creating a system inside of my space that I felt both gave kids agency and also helped to inform my instruction and also inform future um, assessments was something that I really started to lean heavily on and bringing teaching first teaching kids how to be more knowledgeable about their own learning yeah. and what mastery looks like and co-constructing success criteria really developing exemplars together really having opportunities for kids to express their learning because if there was one thing I did learn in that in that uncomfortable time to where I got was that my assessments were terribly, you know, I'm not infallible. And my assessments were definitely not as good as they could be, even mm. after I had turned the corner. So having students be a part of that conversation, having opportunities for them to fill the gaps of what I could see both in their work and in class and what was actually going on in their head, which is what reflection was really able to provide me of important insight on what goals they were working on based on feedback that, that they had been given in class, what strategies were working, um, where they really wanted to focus their energy. I was able to give them really differentiated feedback, which sort of helped class become a lot more personalized. So mm-hmm. even though I may have had a workshop model and I could have done a five minute mini lesson at the, for everybody, those opportunities I had in the feedback I was giving, the better I got at giving feedback, every student could get what they needed in those one-on-one times, whether it was in writing on their documents or in person during class while I was like knee to knee with them at a table and just kind of really get into it. And even the shape of what learning looked like in our shared learning space was very different than my early career where you would have walked into a room and it would have looked really traditional, by the end of my career, you probably couldn't have found me in the room. Mm-hmm. I was either on the floor with the kids or at a table. And um, so when people would come in and say, you know, where's Miss Saxteen? And I would be like mm-hmm. nestled in with a group somewhere. And I would just be yeah. like, I'll be there in a second. And you know, it, it really did become more about their learning and my ability to support them. And that started with my journalism space. I think it made me braver in my English classrooms because I saw how well it functioned when I relinquished control to my students and gave them the tools they needed to be in charge of what was happening in the space. So for me, getting involved with scholastic journalism was a major turning point in my pedagogy. Um, mm-hmm. JEA, the Journalism Education Association, was probably the first education association that I really felt at home. I had been involved with NCTE for a while, but that group of folks, although very knowledgeable, were just not my people. Right. And I think even though I was an English teacher, i more identified as a journalism teacher because I, I thought it was more nuanced, a little bit more flexible, it really covered every content area and that back then it was the 21st century skills was like a big thing, you know, and just opportunities to teach kids to communicate, not just for an audience of one, but for an audience of many and just how exciting and invigorating it was to be a Mm -hmm. part of that community. And I took on, you know, leadership roles in that organization. I got very involved and It got me out to different conferences around the country. And, you know, from there, kind of everything else started to happen too, all at once, seemingly.
0: (laughs) Um, You burst onto the scene, right?
1: (laughs) It felt that way, even though like somebody had said, oh my God, like um, I think in 2011, I had gotten national board certification. And that year I was also honored by the Dow Jones for some of my journalism work. And somebody's like, like, Oh my God, overnight, all this stuff. I'm like overnight in 10 years. Um, you know, it was like a body of 10 years worth of work. And all of a sudden there was just a lot of recognition for that 10 years of work. Yeah.
0: Well, that's that expression, right? It takes 10 years to be an overnight sensation, yeah. Uh, and, and, and that whole idea. Okay, so let's dig into the to the idea of a, a, a non graded classroom. Uh, and so what let's let's talk about a few things. What specifically do you mean when you talk about a non grade classroom? And f- how does a teacher go about shifting? And this I think is one of the most critical parts because as a teacher, you can be all on board and really excited about that. And then the parents and then the students begin to push back a little bit. So what do we mean by non-grade classroom and how do you start shifting the mindset of students and parents to understand what you're doing, what it's not, and how this all plays out in a classroom?
1: So when I talk about non graded classroom, I'm looking at an assessment space where the formative assessment process is really what's driving instruction. So there is a lot of teaching and practicing of skills um, with feedback all along the way without any labeling of that learning. Um, Like I said, in New York City public schools, they did require a grade. So we did talk about mastery. We did talk about proficiency. We talked about what those things look like. And then um, Marzano had a chart that he put in one of his books about what, you know, mastery looks like on a rubric. And what we would do is we, I kind of adapted it to work with the language we were using in class and then transfer that into a grade for the report card where it was like, A means you're, you're at mastery, B means you're proficient, C means you're not there yet, and anything below that. Um, just means that we're still working on it. And I didn't really give kids grades below that so long as there was any evidence whatsoever that they were near the standards we were working on. Mm -hmm. So that meant um, embedding the language of the standards in everything that we did so that kids knew what and why they were learning what they were learning and why they were learning it and how to talk about that learning. So we were all using the same language, Um, a lot of kid-friendly discussions about that. Um, When I first brought up the idea of no grades, it was not met with love among most of the kids, (laughs) especially as an AP teacher. You know, your A students, your honor students are the ones who are most attached to their grades. So walking into a learning space and saying, hey, we're not gonna do it this way anymore. It is gonna meet with a wall, especially if you have kids defining themselves right. based on that assessment. So the first thing is talking about, you know, what does it mean? What, you know, what do grades mean to you? What, what is that? When you say you're an A student, what is that really representing? And having class discussions in lieu of whatever other subject area we were gonna talk about that day, to really get at the heart of why it was so important to them, Mm -hmm. and then try to help them understand, especially, and fortunately and unfortunately, I had a colleague who taught um, AP macroeconomics, and it was a very number-based class, and a lot of my students used to come from his class directly into mine, and I'd hear them talking about their tasks, and they'd be like, I got a 37 out of 62 or, uh, you know, whatever the numbers was. And I was like, but what was the topic of the test? Mm -hmm. And once the test was over, none of them could even talk about what they learned or what they were being assessed on. And I said, you know, it's kind of silly that you care more about the number that's on top of the page than what you actually took away from that experience. Yeah. And I think the more there was tangible evidence that that wasn't even representative of their learning right now, um, the more they seemed willing to go on the journey with me. Right. Um, I, I will admit working in the small school that I worked in and having taught so many different grade levels, most of my students had had me for more than one year in a different right. class or Over time, I had a reputation in that school. I was there for nine years, and you know, kids wanted to be in my class. There was an implicit trust that happened because you'd have seniors coming back who were like, You know, Miss Saxton, that's the teacher you want to have if you want to be ready for college. So they did the crazy stuff I asked them to do Mm -hmm. without much complaint because I had a track record of helping kids be prepared even right. if my methodology was non-traditional um, and for parents in that environment I created a YouTube channel so that they could see the learning that was happening in the class and that's when I started doing those um, deep thoughts from the dashboard and kind of sharing my reflections of what was happening yeah. in this space and also live streaming my class sometimes with very good results and sometimes with very realistic results of what happens in a high school English classroom. And, you know, I invited parents to ask as many questions as they want and just made myself very available and kept assuring them that they'd be getting more information from me than they would if it was just a grade.
0: It's it's so interesting. So many things stood out for me as you talked there. the the one the one that stood out right away at at first is that we as adults have allowed students to define themselves by the by their grades, and so we have to take some responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. We can't just lament the fact that they're grade grubbers. I've I've said several times, and and I say this all the time to groups I work with: kids don't come to kindergarten as grade grubbers; they learn that after they enter the system. What I loved most about your description of, of what you did with your students is you you didn't just walk into the room and say, I'm changing. And that's, this is what's going to change. You had a conversation with them. And I think so often we underestimate the value of, 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 reasoning with students and helping them understand the why behind the changes and and making sure that they understand that this is the direction we're going and here's why this is going to help you be more prepared and you're right once once your reputation starts growing in a school then students start to uh, start to want to be in that classroom because the, the proof is is in in how they feel how they learn and then beyond that how they how they're prepared and the last point about parents. Uh, The YouTube channel is brilliant, because it's about transparency. I think Mm -hmm. too often, again, we keep parents in the dark. And I love the fact that you were just open and honest about about the shift. And I think, uh, you know, and all the little changes that you're making, I think that really does take parents to a place where, you know, if I were to encapsulate what most parents say to me in situations like that, I would encapsulate it with this sort of phrasing. I would, you know, a lot of parents will say, you know, at first I was really against this, mm-hmm. but once I saw how much information I'm getting about my child's learning, I'd never want to go back to the old way. And that's, mm-hmm. that pretty much sums up what most parents' responses are, because as you have that experience with your son and so many parents have that experience, they, they, once they realize how much, uh, how much more information they get about their child's learning. So can we talk a little bit about feedback now? Sure. Because that obviously is the focus. And I, and I want to ask you not what are the big ideas of feedback, because I think the big ideas of feedback are fairly ubiquitous, you know, timely, specific, descriptive, right. et cetera. What are some of the nuances or some of the lessons that you've learned about feedback specifically? Like here's the research, but here are some nuances that I've been able to sort of think about and, and realize that worked in my classroom or were effective.
1: So I, I think one thing I could say about myself is that I am not a praise everyone kind of teacher. Um, so my students knew that the, when they were getting validating um, positive feedback from me, it wasn't just me trying to fluff them up. They knew that it was deserved. And, and that was a part of it as well to be really clear. Like, I think there's a tiered situation here. Students really need to know the end, the end um, goal first. Once they have that success criteria, you need to use the language of that success criteria in the feedback that you're providing. Um, when you're looking at exemplars in the beginning, you use the language of what things actually are because it, it, it's two tiered. Um, the more articulate you could be in what you're teaching and giving feedback on, the more articulate students could be when they're advocating for help, you know, ad- advocating for needs, um, working with peers and being able to give better feedback to peers. So it's always a modeling situation. I stopped saying things like, this is good. And when students ask me, is this good? That was not, um, that was not a question I would respond to. I would turn it around to them and I would say, all right, first of all, what does good even mean to you? Is there something specific you need help with? I'm not going to sit here and read five pages in the middle of class and then evaluate what's going on here. What, I need you to get a little more clarity on what you're really asking me right now. And it needs to be something that I can answer relatively quickly because I still have 33 other kids in this class And if you want to set up a conference, I'd be happy to have that more in-depth conversation with you, but it's just not fair to do it in the middle of class unless we're having conferences in that day. So getting them used to the fact that they couldn't just rely on me as the sole expert in the room was really big, Mm -hmm. training the other kids in the space to become experts in certain topics so that they were able to both identify and articulate you know, identify what students needed help with or what they were doing well, and then articulate specific actionable feedback that would either help them improve what was already being done or um, support them if they weren't doing it correctly. And so really excellent feedback in terms of nuance is, again, that formative process, being with kids every step along the way knowing where they started and knowing that each kid is starting in a different place because yeah. you can't just have stock feedback that you put on every kid's paper, which I did in my early career. I'm not, Im- I mean, it's a little embarrassing, but it's a part of the process, <laughs> you know, like right. right? if I'm assessing an introductory paragraph and I'm looking for thesis, certain things in a thesis statement, and I have a Google doc full of specific feedback around all the issues that could come up with uh, an introductory paragraph and I'm cutting and pasting to save time versus knowing that student A has a goal of working on cohesion or developing context inside of an introductory paragraph and student B doesn't have a really good grasp on what a thesis statement is, the kind of feedback I'm going to be giving to those two students is very different. Right. Um, So.
0: yeah, it's you know I, I love the I love the way you turn that around because I, I'm a real advocate for you know feedback that causes thinking and I think sometimes for all the right reasons you know I don't mean this to sound negative but I think a lot of times teachers are guilty of giving one too much feedback mm-hmm. and two guilty of doing too much of the thinking for the students I mean obviously if you're dealing with a a novice writer and someone who really needs a little more hands-on, you're going to be a little bit more direct with them. But as students grow in their proficiency, I think I think being able to turn feedback around into a question or a prompt or point them in the direction. And I love the fact that you said, listen, you got to come back to me with some specifics. It's not just, hey, I, you know, I don't get it. Is this good? What specifically are you wondering about? I love that. Right. Um, you know what, Star? We all have to embrace our past. So don't, don't be embarrassed about, uh, it wouldn't be a career if we hadn't grown, right? That's uh, true. You know, if we had it all figured out in year one, then we would have a, I always say you can either have a 30 year career or you can have a one year career, 30 years in a row. And uh, Mm. so I think that we all, we all, we all have to grow. So we have to just own our past and and our traditional grading (laughs) and all of those things.
1: I own it. So. Yeah, we gotta own
0: it. And it's and it's part of the story, it's part of the journey. And I also think it humanizes it a little bit is that as you go out and do workshops and talk about your past, I think it puts people at ease to know that I don't have to have this all figured out on the on the first day. So can we talk a little bit more about going gradeless? Because I, I think that term gets is it you know gets thrown around. It's out there, it's on Twitter, mm-hmm. it's on different places. And teachers may look at that and say, okay, so how do I go gradeless when I have to produce a report card? So what are we really talking about grading less in as in two words, or are we talking about, you know, throwing out grades where you're just, you're not doing it at all anymore? How, how does a teacher look at that and say, if someone's new to the idea, how, how would you coach them on, you know, what that means when they know they have to produce a report card?
1: So that's, that's also got a couple of layers, I think. Um, If I didn't have to put a grade on a report card, I wouldn't have and my principal loved the work that I was doing with kids, but New York City said we had to and the students would even push back sometimes like why do we have to give ourselves grades, if we've already decided that grades aren't useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, you know, it, it's a legitimate question, especially when I'm advocating for it 98% of the time. And then there's that one time at the end, you know, midterm and at the end of term where I'm like, well, we have to actually look at your body of work now and determine what level of mastery you've, you know, what level of mastery you've achieved on these various different standards that we've kind of focused on for the last mm-hmm. little bit of time in the content and I tried to de-emphasize the grade part of it. Um, It was far more important to me that they were able to articulate their learning in a meaningful way, Mm -hmm. be able to note the progress based on earlier work from their portfolio to where they were now, and then be able to assert what kind of goals they were moving to next. And I think that even though we did have to put a grade on the report card, those other activities became so prevalent in what was happening in the classroom that the grade was an afterthought. Um, and the fact that we were having conversations about their learning, those those um, assessment conferences we were having at the beginning of the year were definitely more um, led by me, asking a lot of questions and sort of putting them, putting them in a position to be able to defend the work that they were doing. and by midyear um th- there was a definite shift in who was talking more and then by the end of year when they were doing their full year reflection on their work they did 98% of the quest- you know of the talking and i was really just asking additional clarifying questions or asking them to go a little further and then you know we would discuss the grade at the end but they would come to me with notes They would have feedback prepared and ready to discuss. Um, I gave out um, in class, they would have time to fill out the Google form that I would send out each mid and end of term that had a, a list of all the work that we did, the standards that we addressed, and they had opportunities to actually pull from their own work. Like it was important enough for me to say to them, we're gonna spend a week's worth of time where you're gonna be doing this in class, not on your own. If you don't finish it in class in that week's time, you're gonna have to do it on your own, but you will have a full week in class to Mm -hmm. review review your portfolio, start reflecting about your learning, fill out the Google form, prepare for your conference um, Mm -hmm. so that you could be fully ready to have that conversation. And there was a lot of value placed on their being able to articulate their strengths and their challenges and the plans they were putting in action to sort of enact Mm -hmm. that.
0: Yeah. The, um, again, you know, when you look at asking students to consider levels of mastery, I mean, even when we are required to produce a grade, a grade can be, you know, what is the degree to which you've learned the material, or it can be the result of harvesting points through, you know, the accumulation over time. And I, you know, so if you're required, uh, by the state or by your district to produce a report card. It's it's all in what it's supposed to mean. And I think that creates a, a a seamless connection between what the students experienced in class and then being able to engage them in that, okay, now, where are you on this sort of progression or this gradation of quality? So where where do you land on that for sure? So speaking of students, I, w- I want to move to this idea of uh, in hacking assessment, you write this, I'm going, to, I'm going to read you a quote from your book, which okay. is always fun, and then ask you sort of to follow up on this. So in hacking assessment, you write, quote, it is essential that we develop a learning space where failure is positive, as it is a catalyst for growth and for change. You go on to write that students need to recognize that taking a risk and not succeeding does not mean they're failing. It means they need to try another way, end quote. So we live in a world right now of immediate results. It seems as though we live in a world where young people, and I don't mean to sound like the old guy yelling at clouds and telling kids to get off my lawn, but it seems (laughs) like it seems like, you know, today with our, in our, in our TikTok driven world and how many likes and retweets we get, that, that students are really all about the immediacy, the, the sort of immediate gratification. So in in that idea, how do we go about shifting that mindset in class when our students may have already come to us with a immediate gratification kind of mindset? How do we shift that in our students?
1: So you mentioned earlier about my transparency, and I think it's all about model, 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 trans, be transparent and humble and honest with them mm-hmm. all the time. So if you're gonna ask them to take risks and get things wrong, you have to be comfortable taking risks and getting things wrong right out in front of them. And then Mm -hmm. acknowledging that you know you made a mistake and these are the ways you're gonna rectify it. And I was not above being in the middle of a lesson that I thought was gonna be stellar and just being like, all right, we're gonna stop right (laughs) now. This is clearly not going the way that I want it to go someone talked to me about how we could do this better. And, you know, there have been times where I would be having a bad day in class and I would snap at a kid for the wrong reason, or I'd say something out a at a turn in terms of something that wasn't accurate to a text. And I'd address that student individually first to apologize and then also save it. I'm going to bring it up in class again so that we could kind of flesh it out together. So I was not immune to the same expectations that I held them to. Mm -hmm. And as a young teacher moving into, you know, not being as young, I mean, sometimes I still feel so very young. And sometimes I feel like if I were still in a high school English classroom, I'm much older than my students now. Mm -hmm. When back then I was like, the gap was very, very small um, between me and them. Even when I was in my early 30s, they were still, you know, 18, there was still a cultural connection in a lot of ways. At this point, the last time I was in a classroom in my early 40s, you know, the cultural references, like I would say something and most of them would look at me like, hey, you know, and I just... (laughs) Um, you really have never seen that movie. It was so popular. Right. And then all of a yeah. sudden I'm like, I'm that person now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I got to try a little yeah. harder to be on their level, I guess. Right. Yeah. Um, but I Ooh. think that that's really where the heart of that mistakes piece comes in is that that humility needs to be a part of who we are as people. And, you know, you got to be the first one through the wall for them. Right. Right. And if you don't know the answer, admit you don't know the answer.
0: Yeah, I think that modeling part is so important. I think too often teachers begin, and and some of it may come from, you know, our, uh, you know, lack of experience early in our career, we're trying to overcompensate for our youth, you know, our, our our lack of maturity, our lack of experience, all of that. And we try to be perfect. And we try to act like we know everything. And it seems that so many of us, probably the vast majority of educators I come across, realize that as they moved on in their career, we start to learn more and more what we don't know. And more importantly, we become comfortable with that, with mm-hmm. the fact that, hey, this lesson, I thought it was going to be epic, and it's a disaster, and we need to we need to change change. I'm not sure I would have done that in my second year teaching, my first year teaching, but I definitely know later on in my career that was just an easier mm-hmm. sort of mindset to slip into. So you've talked a lot about student involvement, and I want to just explore this idea of student partnerships. I know that you're a big proponent of that, and we know it's important to bring students inside that assessment and grading process. And yet so many teachers will say to me, and I'm sure they've said it to you, listen, when I, when I try to get my students more involved, they're just so resistant. And in the end, they just, I just end up doing it for them, or I just end up telling them because I find it so frustrating. I mean, you, you obviously cultivated that in your classroom, but Mm -hmm. not every teacher will necessarily be as successful uh, initially. I mean, they can in the long term, but maybe not initially, uh, as you are, as you you have been. So what advice do you have for teachers? Uh, what, what specifically can you do? The modeling is one part. Um, I think that's really important. But when teachers are feeling that frustration about the fact that I try to get my students to self-assess, I try to get them to do things, and they just sit there, and they don't do anything. What, what advice do you have for, for teachers to, to begin that process, to try to change that culture within their classroom?
1: So wait time is invaluable. Um, I think most students, most younger people, and babies learn this right away. As a matter of fact, um, I'll share an anecdote. When my son was still an infant and we were sleep training him, um, there was one night he crawled out of his crib and started banging on our door. And I was literally crying on the other side of the door. my husband at the time was like, let's just let him in. I was like, are you crazy? Like we just sat here for 40 minutes trying to make a point that he's going to sleep in his own room. He's going to tire himself out eventually. If we let him in now, what is the lesson learned? The lesson learned is if I cry loud enough and long enough, I get my way. Right? So kids understand that, just like they know if i ask once and you say no and i ask twice and you say no and i ask a third time and you're sick of hearing me ask and you say yes then it's just a matter of asking as many times. In a classroom things aren't going to work the first time and if you give up and kids see that they're not going to try. They're just not going to do it. You got to stick to your guts. You got to really like grit it out. Yeah. yeah. Um accept that it's going to be crap in the beginning, but it's, a, it's it's a first step. And you just yeah. have to understand that no one naturally knows how to reflect and self-assess about academic learning. Like we kind of, I think there's a misconception that reflection is a natural thing that we do. And it's the idea of thinking about what we've done might be something that is natural, mm-hmm. but never in terms of our academic successes or failures that is not a natural process not even a little bit so there needs to be structures that are put in place that could be scaffolded and then taken away as kids become more accustomed to that process and you can't quit on it when it doesn't go right the first time it doesn't go right the second time it's not going to you might have one or two really awesome kids who just get it and are willing to go the distance more because they're people pleasers than they understand why they're doing all of these things. And it might take them a little while to understand, that this is really about them and not about pleasing you. Right. Um, so it's just really about having a plan, being comfortable adjusting that plan and not quitting when it doesn't work the first or second time. It's finding root causes. Why isn't it working? What do I need yeah. to adjust? Talk to the kids. Why aren't they doing it? You know, Mm -hmm. what about it is, doesn't seem useful to their learning. And maybe if you could unpack that with them, you'll have more success moving forward.
0: Right. When it comes to reflection, um, you talked you you just talked a little bit about structures and systems that need to be put in place at first. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an example of a, a structure or a system that you might put in place early on that eventually you can take away? But but what are some of the, what what might be an example of, of structure that uh, a teacher might consider in the in the early stages?
1: So I used to actually have a poster that hung on my wall with the steps of reflection, and it was mm. the same. It was the same way all the time. And the first few reflections that they wrote for me with my ninth graders and my L's, I would actually, we would do piece by piece by piece. So the -hmm. first step was always to restate what they thought they were supposed to do in the assignment. So they write a paragraph that tells me what they understood the assessment to be. And the reason that's important is too many times I was noticing that I didn't always get the work back that I thought I should be getting back. And that was a clarity mistake for me. So Mm -hmm. how could I assess kids appropriately if they were doing a different assignment than the one I thought I asked them to do? Mm -hmm. By having them define it, then I could then assess the project through their eyes, through what they expected to do. And then we're on the same page at least. So that's important step number one. What were you supposed to do in this assignment? what was the point? Step two, take me through your process. I want you to tell me from start to finish how you were able to do this assignment. You know, did you take breaks? Where did you find your research? Where did you struggle? How did you get over those struggles? And then step three is aligning it with the standards. Where in your work can you support that you are meeting exceeding or not there yet if you had to write an argument paper using these standards that I said, we're going to be assessed right now. And then the third part is, you know, what was my new learning? How do I, you know, how do I take that new learning and how have I applied it? If there were goals, did I meet the goals I set for myself? What strategies did I use? And then the very last part is based on the success criteria we developed together, where would I assess myself? you'll note none of it is about how my partners didn't do their work, um, how I liked the project or didn't like the project. Those aren't irrelevant things, but for this type of reflection, it doesn't really fit because it's really all about their learning.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can, I love that structure, because I think too often we look at structures and protocols, and they can be looked at with a level of cynicism to suggest that they're restricting or they limit students. But at the same time, when you're trying to build a habit, and you're trying to help students go through a process that is going to be meaningful, it's it's one thing to say to students, like, just reflect on your work, that you're, you're going to get you'll either get nothing or you're going to get just this loose kind of, if you're lucky, you'll get a loose connection to the work that they've done. But if you teach them the, the process of how to go through a proper reflection, eventually you won't need that protocol. I, I would imagine that was your experience that as your students, as that became habitual, uh, you no longer had to really walk them through the protocols. I, is that a fair assessment of what your experience yeah, was? Yeah, and I
1: mean, in those first few that they did, um, they got a lot of feedback. So if there were things that were missing, I would call them out on that. They had the opportunity to revise if they wanted to, but if they mm-hmm. were reflecting so frequently in class, they could just apply it to the next one if they wanted to as well. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's great. Okay, let's let's bring this all together. Okay, okay. We've, we've talked about going gradeless. Okay, Star, I'm a, I'm a teacher. I work in a school. No one in my school has gone gradeless at all. Nobody, this is about as traditional as it gets, and I have to produce a report card every nine weeks. But I'm really interested. And I'm intrigued. I see the work. I see people posting things on Twitter. I've read the blog posts. I've listened to the podcasts. I've, I've done all of that. And I'm ready to go. But I don't know where to start. So what advice do you have for somebody who wants to rethink their whole approach to assessment, but they don't have anyone that they're working with? The school isn't on board with that. They're the only person in that school. Where do they begin?
1: Gosh, Tom, you just explained my entire experience um,
0: with this work. <laughs> so let's bring it. What? How, how do I? What? How, how? What do you tell teachers uh, who are in in that position? What, what do they have to do?
1: Number one, stop grading everything. Like that's okay. the first really simple thing you can do. Stop like with the with the Pavlovian response of every work needs to have a grade for it to have meaning. So having that conversation with kids about what it means to learn and what it means to have learning assessed and what the point of all those things are, you could start there without upending the life of anybody in your space. Um, really spend a lot more time on feedback and also getting students involved in making curricular choices. So giving getting them involved in it as well, because the more... What we spend time in, in class, the things we give time to is what we value. So if you're telling kids it's about the learning, you need to make the focus of what happens in class, their learning, their voices, their choices, right? That's something else you could do. The next thing I could say is bring reflection in so that when it does come time to give a grade, you at least have a much fuller vision of what a student knows and can do because now you're also getting their thoughts about what they're learning and not just what you see both in class or in their assessments, particularly for those students who don't turn in work regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, Have conversations, conferences with them, talk to them about their learning, get them involved in what's happening. And I would say find a group online, if not in your school, Um, the teachers throwing out grades group, the standards-based grading group, um, mm-hmm. the teachers going grade list group. There are a lot of groups on Facebook specifically dedicated to this practice that have tons and tons and tons of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a YouTube channel. There's tons of podcasts out there Mark yes. Barnes has tons of books. Ken O'Connor has tons of books. You have to decide how far you really want to go because there is a spectrum. Tom, you have books, you know, like, <laughs> you know, there, there's a spectrum of, yeah. you know, how far to the to the other side do you want to go, right. and then find where that group of people are that you could start inching in that direction.
0: Right, right. This this would have been a much lonelier proposition. 20 years ago when you didn't have access to networks and groups. You see so much of that on Twitter and Facebook and, and other social media platforms where people just are so thankful for establishing these connections that they otherwise wouldn't have because you know you might be alone in your school and being able to connect with people who've been through it, being able to connect with somebody like you who has has gone through that Evolution and and someone who can can provide some advice and some connection and some feedback to things that you post and all of that I think is is a wonderful opportunity for people. So don't be shy about uh, jumping into those those Facebook uh, groups that are out there for sure. Uh, Star, we're gonna I, I, you know again I this is this is in my wheelhouse. The assessment and grading conversation is something we could do for hours, um, and I'm gonna use this as a, as an excuse, as I've said to to several others, uh, use it as an excuse to have you back on the podcast at some point. But uh, we're gonna to finish up today with um, a segment uh, I call three questions. Uh, it's just three lighthearted questions. we g- We've talked very seriously about assessment and going gradeless <laughs> and all of those different concepts. So we're gonna have a little fun here. Uh, just three lighthearted questions. So listeners can get to know you a little bit more. And then I've got one more question for you at the end about success. So the first question I want to ask you is just a very simple this or that question. And it's this. Okay, okay. sweet or savory? Are you a sweet oh. person or a savory person?
1: Depends on my mood.
0: All right. <laughs> you got to pick one.
1: Oh, no. Um, I would say savory more than sweet.
0: Okay. Savory more than sweet. You know, Tom Gusky did that to me, too. He sat right on the fence of the sweet and savory. Well, maybe it's a bad question.
1: It's really like a mood thing. Like there are some there days I crave sweet and there are some days I crave salty. So.
0: Yeah, there you go. That's that's true. That's true. Okay. Question two. If you could travel back in time, what period of time would you go back to and why?
1: Oh man, I'm such a history nerd. I, I would say oh, maybe, I have two. I, of course I, I ha- always have to have two. So no I Greece. Okay, because um, I'm a really big lover of Greek poetry and literature and mythology, and to be able to be in that atmosphere where democracy supposedly flourished, and there are so many really fascinating things that our current lives are built on—at least in theory—and then I also, in this, in the same vein, um probably early American like colonial days to be a part of the forming of the country, because I feel like I could probably have been somebody who got more involved than most women did. I would have found a way (laughs) to, um, to get my voice heard and maybe change a couple of things that hurt us so much from the very beginning. Right. And then, I mean, not so long
0: you yeah. would have been the voice of reason, right? You would have changed the course of history, uh, quite literally. <laughs> yeah,
1: maybe I could maybe. have try.
0: Well, we hope so. Uh, okay, last one. Uh, best concert you've ever been to, and what mm. made it so great?
1: Gosh, these are hard questions. I, I, I know. don't know if you knew this, Tom, but I used to be a music journalist in my early days. I saw a lot. I of did live, not know that. Saw a lot of live music. Wrote about a lot of live music. Okay, okay, so this is also going to be multi-tiered. James Taylor was my very first concert. Um, My parents took me and it it was like a yearly concert that we always went to at Jones Beach. Um, Mm -hmm. And James Taylor sort of became a major part of my soundtrack in my early childhood. Um, And a lot of like folky and classic rock stuff was also very big in my growing up. I was a big dead head. I've got. I went to tons and tons and tons and tons of dead shows. Unfortunately, Jerry was kind of past his prime by the time I started going to shows. Yeah. But my very first dead show was when I was 14, my dad took me and we had backstage passes. And it was one of the coolest experiences wow. of my life. And I think part of the reason being at dead shows was so transformational for me. It's like, I was a kind of weird kid And it was probably the first place I ever really felt like I could be myself and I didn't Mm. feel judged or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And then there were three one-off concerts later in life. I saw Barbara Streisand, Paul McCartney, um, and the Rolling Stones. And for the fact that, you know, they were all kind of past their prime when I saw them, but it's still them i also saw billy joel and elton john together which was kind of awesome and so i mean i've seen a lot of really phenomenal shows um but those are the ones that kind of stand out the most
0: how did you get backstage passes
1: my dad knew somebody who knew the the guy that handled their lights wow or their soundboard i don't know however it was something like that I got called into the office at school. It was the craziest thing. Like, um, and I was never in trouble in high school. So like to be called down to the office to tell me that I had a phone call, like he surprised me in the middle of the day. And we went to the Nassau Coliseum early so that I could go backstage before the show. And we had really great seats. And it was really the beginning of a love affair with that band and traveling all over the country to see them, really.
0: Wow. That's, 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 uh, yeah, I did not know that uh, musical journalism part of, of your career. Um, okay, so I've got one final question for you, Star. And this is a question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. It's a very simple question, and yet a complex question about mm-hmm. success. And the question is, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them?
1: I would probably say that success to me is being able to accomplish the goals that I set for myself. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they're simple and sometimes they're more complicated, but I think the happiness comes in the doing and that that's the part of the you know, that's what success is to me to just kind of enjoy the ride.
0: Yeah. 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 That, that the, the accomplishment, the setting, the goal, it's interesting because so many that I've talked to talk about our own personal definition of success and what, how we define it. and not, you know, very few people, if any, have talked about the societal definition or what society thinks is successful. You know, we define that and the idea of meeting your goals and that the happiness comes from the journey. Uh, along that way. I, I, I love that idea. Uh, Star, again, thanks. Thanks for taking the time to be here today. Listeners, uh, really, really want to encourage you to follow Star on Twitter. She is a great follow. Uh, her Twitter Twitter handle is at Miss Saxstein. So that, again, is uh, still the teacher in you, right? Miss mm-hmm. Saxstein? <laughs> I'd also encourage you to check out uh, Star's website. It's com, where you're going to find a ton of information, including a blog, uh, listings of publications uh, different conferences and consult you know consulting opportunities uh, and also how to contact her should you wish to have star work with you or or with you and your colleagues uh, there's information there and as well uh, star's YouTube channel uh, to find find star on YouTube uh, star Saxton on on YouTube some great really and I think the one thing that I noticed the most about just the videos you post and 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 obviously in our conversation today is what what impresses me the most is, uh, among several things is your level of authenticity. I love I love the, the 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 realness of the conversation and on the YouTube channel, just the authenticity of of what you posted there. I can see why that would be a great resource for parents and and for students uh, along that journey. So, uh, lots of great ways to connect with Stars uh, Star listeners, and uh, certainly would encourage you to follow her on Twitter as I said. So Star, again, I can't thank you enough for being here. I look forward to our conversation sometime down the road.
1: Thanks, Tom. I look forward to it as well
0: in assessment corner this week I want to focus on multiple choice and you might be wondering well why are you focusing on multiple choice Tom it's 2021 well it's interesting because in this past week I've had two different trainings where multiple choice came up and both individuals were asking a question essentially you know Tom are you saying we shouldn't use multiple choice or are you saying multiple choice is wrong or something like that so I thought it was an interesting topic to kind of explore So we know, of course, as standards get more complex, we need to consider more robust assessment methods and and those that are beyond multiple choice or selective response. You know, we know that picking an answer is not enough for some of our sophisticated standards. Now, it's easy to be dismissive of multiple choice in part because of standardized tests, right? We, We see that standardized tests, that's the dominant format, and therefore we don't want to mimic that in any kind of way. But to be assessment literate is to know the strengths and limitations of every assessment method and to understand that every assessment method is valid, but every assessment method has limitations. We have to know when multiple choice is the right choice. And again, whether we're using the assessments formatively or summatively, the format is the right fit for certain types of learning targets. There are some advantages to multiple choice. Okay, one is breadth. You can assess a large amount of material in a very short period of time. The other is reliability, right? Reliability is inherently addressed, because the answer to each question is clear, right? There's no scoring inferences, there's no rubrics, there's no calibration required. The answer is the answer. Now, there of course are some disadvantages to multiple choice, including what you can assess. So as standards get more sophisticated, picking an answer is not really enough evidence to help us uh, know exactly where a learner is, uh, so if you're assessing well-defined or relatively simple foundational knowledge, etc., it's a good fit, But but if you're going beyond that, then that's problematic as well. You don't get very much information as to how the student arrived at their response. Now, I do know that some teachers add an explanatory component to their multiple choice, you know, but for me, that's just getting a little too cute. You know, why use multiple choice if you're going to add a constructed response component? One of the real advantages of multiple choice is efficiency. So, when you add in the constructed response component, you start to slow things down, which means you're not going to get as much. And with multiple choice, you do need to ask a number of questions. One or two questions is simply insufficient in terms of giving you a complete picture as to where a learner is. So, why not just develop a constructed response stem and have them do that? Now, again, I'm not saying that's wrong inherently. Like you can do that, add the constructed response explanatory component. I'm just saying it's not for me, okay? It's not something I would do. So because I could get the right answer, what if I choose the right answer but give you the wrong explanation? What do you do with that, right? That, so it starts to get a little bit messy. So the upside of multiple choice is clarity and reliability. But if you start tinkering a little bit with it, it, it can actually be a little messy and, and start to get convoluted. So, okay, so my point is really that multiple choice at any level should not be dismissed uh, just because we don't like the method. And I know that for many people we sort of think of the stereotype of bubble sheets and Scantron machines, but remember that a four corners activity is selected response. It's just in a different format. So even at the very youngest of grade levels, selected response can be a valid assessment format to give you a chance to gain insight as to where the learners are, even if you're using it formatively, right? When you think about multiple choice being the preferred method for what Dylan William calls hinge point questions as the key to any mid-lesson assessment, because using selected response or multiple choice allows the students to quickly complete, uh, complete the task and for the teacher to quickly interpret the results. And that matters when you're talking about a mid-lesson assessment. So that's why exit tickets are a poor choice for a mid-lesson assessment. Because one, they're not exiting. and, And two, they're time consuming, both for the students to produce and time consuming for the teacher to consume. And that's why at the end is better. Now, the other issue that arises when trying to Uh, assess more cognitively complex learning through multiple choices, that teachers don't really have the time it takes to develop sophisticated multiple choice questions. Now, look, that's not a slight on teachers. That's just the truth, right? Good questions take time to develop. Standardized test questions are agonized over. And I just don't think most teachers can direct that kind, can afford to direct that kind of energy toward crafting one item, right? And nor should they, I just don't think that's an efficient use of your time. And I'd suggest that in the time it takes to develop one cognitively complex multiple choice item, it's probably going to be the equivalent to what it would take to consume a constructed response for the very same content. So I don't think you're really going to save any time. So for me, this isn't a question of can you, but it's more a question of should you. And so with all of that, if at any point you are going to use multiple choice, again, whether formatively or summatively. It's important to consider a number of different features when developing the questions. Now, what I'm going to share with you is not an exhaustive list. There are a lot of things we have to consider when, when, when crafting multiple choice questions, but I'm going to give you a list of five. And I also want you to know that if these five things are not reconciled, your higher performing students, those who are thriving in the learning, will probably work around you. Uh, They'll probably be successful despite the limitations of your questions because they'll be able to infer what you mean or they'll be able to, you know, do all the things that are necessary to be successful. But don't misunderstand that. The fact that our higher performing students in that moment can navigate around our poorly designed questions, that's not a win, okay? That's not a good thing. Uh, It's just that that's a coping mechanism for them, and that helps them in that moment. But there's a sliding scale here that, you know, the more proficient you are, the more you'll probably be able to absorb some of the deficiencies in how the questions are designed. Okay, let's get to the list. Here are five things that I want you to consider if, in fact, you're crafting any kind of multiple choice assessment or experience for your students. As I said, four corners can be a multiple choice uh, kind of format as well. Okay, first. Each question should be self-contained, okay? Each question should represent a complete thought and be written as a coherent sentence or or a complete question, okay? So think about end punctuation. Um, You can have open-ended multiple-choice questions, but we'll get to why that could potentially be problematic uh, in a moment. But one suggestion in the research is make sure that each question is self-contained. Okay, two. Make sure that the readability is appropriate, right? So we want to make sure that the the, the reading level of the question, this is why sometimes when you get assessments from pre-purchased uh, programs and things like that, we have to audit the reading level of the questions to make sure that the readability is not one of the mitigating factors as to why the students are performing at a higher level or a lower level. We have to make sure that they're at the appropriate level, right? And to go along with that, it's also important to consider... Listing your answer options uh, and choices alphabetically or num- numerically if that's applicable, right? We're not trying to trick kids here. This is not assessment is trickery where we're trying to hide the answer or confuse them. Just put the answers there. And when al- alphabetical or when numerical makes sense, then, then just do that. And I would also suggest that that vertically, listing your answer options vertically, yes, horizontally saves uh, space and paper, but sometimes the questions can be so compressed that for students it's just a blur and it's really hard to kind of you know uh, v- isolate each question and each answer option, so list your answers vertically. Three, okay, avoid using all of the above or none of the above, okay? Each of those brings with it a potential challenge. All of the above creates a two-for-one effect, right? If you have all of the above in the question, All I have to know is that one of those choices is incorrect and I can eliminate the other one, right? So if I know one of the answer options is correct, I can eliminate two because all of the above is also incorrect, right? So if I know that, that's the two-for-one effect. I don't have to consider each of them on their own. None of the above creates a situation where you can get the right answer for potentially the wrong reasons. And I suppose that can always happen in multiple choice, but it especially happens with none of the above when we create questions that that allow students to get the correct answer, but we don't know whether or not they have uh, the right reason for it, right? So I could ask a question such as, and this is one I use a lot just to illustrate the points. Not a great question. I'm not suggesting this is a model, but I am suggesting it sort of, you know, gives you insight as to the, the, the uh, getting the right answer for the wrong reasons. Here's the question. Okay, which city is the capital city of the United States of America, Okay, is it A, New York City, is it B, Los Angeles, is it C, Chicago, or is it D, none of the above? And of course, the answer is D, none of the above, because everyone knows the capital city of the United States is Miami, Florida. You see what I did there? I picked D, none of the above, got the right answer. You'd say I was correct, and yet I absolutely have no idea what the capital city is. So that's that's the challenge. Is you get the right answer for the wrong reason. Somebody say, well, why don't you put a constructive response component there? Well, you could. Again, you can do that. It's just it's not it's not for me. I'd rather construct a good question than add that that component there. Because it, again, you could be leaving a clue, which I'm going to get to in a moment. If you leave a space for an explanation, then then what? Okay, then you're you're kind of leaving a clue that none of the above is the correct answer because if the correct answer were listed in the answer options, I wouldn't need a space to write it down. All right. Now, 4. Make sure all of your answer options are plausible and of relatively equal length, right? So you want every every incorrect answer to represent a misunderstanding because then you could use the assessment question a little bit diagnostically, right? So if if I think about what a common misunderstanding is, and I make that answer B, when you choose B, it is likely that you have that misunderstanding. I can kind of know why you chose that answer. It gives me a little bit of insight. And the other thing is that when you when it comes to your answer options, remember that plausibility is the priority. They have to be good quality items. You don't have to have four OK, three is sufficient. I know we've kind of been conditioned that there has to be a D, but and, and a lot of people for a lot of people to say, well, Tom, if I only have three answer options then the student has a 33 percent chance of guessing correctly as opposed to 25 percent. Well, OK, so if guessing, if if avoiding or, or trying to thwart the student's ability to guess is what you're primarily going for, well, then why not include a G while you're at it? You know, or a J. Let's let's just go for it and and continue to reduce their ability to to guess. Well, listen, it's hard to think of it. Sometimes it's hard to think of a D. So agonizing over a D is not worth the time and effort. And if your D is a throwaway, well, guess what the students are gonna do? They're gonna dismiss that right away and consider the other three right off the bat. So this whole idea that they there there's a reduced chance of them guessing is really not going to play out the way you think it is. So what matters is that each answer option is plausible. It's a believable response. The number of choices is actually pretty overrated when it comes to crafting a good question. And five, avoid leaving clues, okay? So length is one clue. The longest option by far is usually the correct answer, okay? So if every answer option is not of equal length or relatively equal length, um, then, then you're you're probably that's probably a clue that that's the correct answer because we have to thoroughly explain the correct answer we don't have to thoroughly explain the incorrect answer so when in doubt choose the longest answer is a thing right so the bulk of the content really should be in the question stem not the choices so we try not to make the stem too lengthy, but that's where the bulk of the content should be. And also be mindful of grammatical clues. This is what I mentioned earlier about open-ended assessments, right? So grammatical clues, when you leave an open-ended question and you just inadvertently, the, the last word is A-N, an, but only one of the answer choices begins with a vowel, you've kind of left a clue in the question, okay? So that's problematic when it comes to to designing questions as well. Now, that's not an exhaustive list, but it is an essential one for everyday classroom teachers when you're thinking about designing assessment items that yield accurate and reliable information. So again, one more time. One, make sure each question is self-contained. Two, make sure the readability is appropriate, including thinking about things like listing answer options alphabetically or numerically and vertically. Avoid using all of the above and none of the above. Make sure that all answer options are plausible and try to avoid using clues or accidentally leaving clues in your questions. So this is a way you can audit some of your assessment items if you've if you've crafted multiple choice. And again, to me, it's just very short-sighted to be dismissive of multiple choice. Multiple choice is a valid assessment method, but it's limited. So we have to apply it to the right standards and, and the right content, okay? Now... For those of you who just have declared, I never use multiple choice kind of as a badge of honor, remember, you might actually have some inefficiencies on the front end of your unit, in the at the front end of some of your formative work as well, where you might be misusing constructed response, because constructed response is the same. It's a valid assessment method, but it has limitations and sometimes can create some inefficiencies as well. So... That's how you craft a good multiple choice question. Uh, It's again, not an exhaustive list, but it's a way for you to audit some of your questions. And I would encourage all of you that if you do engineer any multiple choice opportunities like four corners, or if you use selected response or multiple choice on any of your assessments, take a fresh look at some of your questions and see if that that list or those, those suggestions are reflected in the questions that you've created. Okay, that is it for today. Remember, follow the podcast Twitter account for updates on guests and other features on the podcast. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. My personal Twitter handle is at Tom Shimmer. Uh, Shimmer Education on Facebook, Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram. Uh, Lots of social media platforms through which you can connect to me. Also, please email your questions for Assessment Corner or your suggestions as well for the podcast. That's TomSchimmerPod at gmail.com. And don't forget about the YouTube channel as well, Uh, subscribing to that. um, Obviously, there's uh, video versions of the interviews on there. There's full episodes of the podcast, but I'm also going to be adding some of the Assessment Corner content as well as the Don't At Me content as well. And you know, a couple weeks ago, I added the learning loss illusion video. So you might want to check that out as well. Next week, my guest is going to be Trevor McKenzie, a fellow BC educator. Trevor is a recognized expert in the area of inquiry-based learning, so that's what we're going to focus on. Uh, Please subscribe and rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. That, of course, is where your ratings and reviews make the biggest difference. And if you like what you're hearing and you think others would benefit, uh, please spread the word about the podcast to some of your colleagues or maybe on social media. I would really, really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.